Paul has uh, been dealing with a number of questions that people have been asking him. Paul, what about this? What do we do with this guy that's been sleeping with his mother? Well, let me write that. What do we do with our communion? We notice some people are dying. That's probably an issue. It's going to be hard to grow the church if that's the case. So Paul has addressed all of these issues. Now he comes in chapter 12 and he's moving into another set. We're still in the church. We're talking about the church, but now he's wrestling with this issue of life in the Holy Spirit. And honestly, it's been as probably as crazy today as it was the, the first time when Paul was writing to them back in Corinth. Um, people take various views on this issue and they get kind of hot and they get somewhat judgmental. And then we start reacting and start writing certain books and we're kind of, you know, uh, trying to, and we, and we always argue, if you will, from my perspective against kind of the polarity, the, the extremes. Because when it comes to the issue of the Holy Spirit, there's kind of two main categories that people tend to walk in. Number one is they kind of, uh, their commitment is the service will always be orderly. We'll never let that thing get out of control. We believe in the Spirit. We're just not going to let him work. We're not even going to expect it. And they kind of quench it. And they might even devise this kind of systematic theology where uh, the Holy Spirit was active back then, but not now. And maybe we'll say he's active now, but, but, but not in the same way. And so we kind of are basically, we're, we're trying to bring it down to an issue. And sometimes we're driven out of the scriptures. But to be quite honest with you, from my perspective, sometimes we just load the text up. And, and we load it up with kind of uh, our prejudice or maybe some other passages and we kind of put them on that. On the other hand... And, and we've seen plenty of these, and that is there are some people who life in the spirit means that we always must allow anything moderately attributed to the Holy Spirit most often is probably going to be slightly chaotic and, and extreme. And we even devise certain things or certain gifts that are not, if you will, supported by the scripture at all. Um, we, we've devised in our modern day this concept of a prayer language. Um, and, and I'll talk about that more in, in, in a few minutes. I remember years ago when I was living in Oregon for the first time, a friend of mine went down to Eugene. Quite candidly, we went down there because there was a church down there that we were kind of enamored by and we kind of wanted to see, hey, have they got something of uh, the mastery or of the work of the Holy Spirit that we, I wasn't a Baptist at the time and uh, I was in another church, but we, we certainly didn't uh, align ourselves at all with the issues of like the sign gifts and, and we'd kind of like written all of those off. But we were inquisitive when we went down there. And, and we went down there, I think, with an open heart. Hey, what, what's going on? Um, we want to be involved in something that is of God. Much like it's what's happening right now at Asbury. There's this revival that's breaking out. And so you, you don't want to miss the wave of God. Blackaby, remember those days when he was writing. Uh, there's, you should never want to like, oh, I, anything that God's doing, I want out. So we went down there and they had to stand up in this ministry time and they were doing this thing called being slain in the spirit. We'd never heard of it. Uh, we, you know, I, we'd heard of it. We just hadn't ever experienced it, I should say. And my friend was on the aisle. That was a good choice on my part. I usually like the aisle seat on an airplane. In fact, I demand it. But for this time, I am really glad that I was a couple of seats in. Because my buddy stood up and they came by and they said, we're, we're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And they just, you know, smacked him upside the head. 
And he kind of looked befuddled and he looked over at me and I didn't say this, but I was thinking that they do that again and we're going back at them. We're going to slay them with something. And so my friend Ron was standing there, man, and he just kind of stood there and the guy, you know, could tell he didn't receive the Holy Spirit. Not sure why I could tell. (laughs) He kind of looked befuddled and the guy came at him again and just wham, smacked his head. Didn't knock him down. I mean, the guy's an Olympic weightlifter. He's phenomenal. And he stood there and then he said the funniest thing in the world, my head hurts. I'll never forget that moment. That was one of my all-time favorites. And, and yet, I mean, we, were, we walked out and, and we, well, honestly, we drove back from Eugene. We were just really disappointed because we wanted to be engaged in something of the power of the Holy Spirit. We really did. I don't want to miss the movement of God. And, and God forbid, I don't want some category that I have or some fear that I have to create in me a disposition where I'm resistant to the spirit of God. Or maybe I even quench the spirit of God. And so Paul's writing to this church and, and they've got messes. They, they do. It's out of control. The church service is crazy. People are doing all kinds of things. And the second thing they're doing, which is really common, is they've elevated certain gifts above others. And they're like, oh, you have the gift of, and whoa, you're, you know, you're, you're something pretty special. And in particular, probably around the sign gifts. I mean, after all, the gift of mercy, huh, nice. You want it when you need it. But let's be honest, man. I and mean, if you're, if you have the gift of knowledge and, and you're bringing it to the table, that's like powerful. And because of their immaturity, they were doing this have and have not. And they did this thing where, you know, have you been blessed by the Holy Spirit? Have you received the, the blessing of the Holy Spirit? And they started creating all of these really bizarre categories that Paul said, you guys have lost your mind. You've come to this place where to be moved by the Holy Spirit is to move into chaos. And Paul says, no, no, when the Holy Spirit comes in you, you never lose control. It's a principle. You never get crazy. There's order in the church. And so rather than take a side and say, we're going to quench the Holy Spirit or over here, and we're going to baptize every crazy thing you do. Paul takes this mediating position, but where he starts is not with the gifts, but rather with the church. What brings us together? What's the one thing we have in common? And he addresses this issue of the unity of the spirit. Now we have a disadvantage to be honest with you, I think, because we've been all raised. Every one of us have been raised in an extremely independent and individualistic culture. We were taught that we're bred that way. We think about ourselves. People ask us, we even tell people, do you have a personal relationship with Christ? We don't even have a concept about how is the church expanding your view of Jesus? We don't think that way. We think very individualistic. When I ask you, how are you doing? Nobody responds. My family is doing well. They tell me how they're doing because that's what we've been trained And what Paul actually wants to do, I think, is change some of the perspective. But we have to realize we live in a culture that is very different than that. We don't think corporately. We don't think familially. We don't think that what this person does will affect me. And we've been trained that what I do in the privacy of my home is my business and it shouldn't be any interest of yours. That's the whole delusion of that whole thinking. 
that you have this private life that doesn't touch anyone else. That's absurd. It really is. And so Paul wants to step back and say, wait, wait a minute, where do we begin? Because when we see it, we, we are automatically drawn to it. In Philip Yancey's book, Rumors, there's a story of Jesse Jackson when he went to Southern Mississippi University. And Jesse was there with the president and they were walking out on the concourse, kind of out on the, in the area in the middle of the university. And, and just something caught their attention. You don't normally see a, a guy that's about 6'8 holding hands with a girl that's 3'3". Three, three. And, and Jesse just kind of was staring at it and watching them walk across. And then they paused for a moment. And this six, eight man who was walking like this to a three, three girl who was walking like this, they stopped and he reached down and he kissed her on the forehead and then sent her along the way. Jesse hadn't stopped watching. And the president said, you want to know what's going on? He goes, yeah, I do. He goes, it's a brother and sister. Their parents died when the young man was 16. He promised his mom and dad, I'll never leave her. I'll take care of her. So when he graduated from high school, this six, eight star had multiple, I think it was 12 different scholarships offered to him. He could have kind of played anywhere, but there was only one school that offered his sister a scholarship. And when you're 18 and your parents have died, you don't go shopping schools and saying, well, you can pay for mine. I'll pay for my sister. You don't have that kind of money. And so he made the choice. I will go to school at the only place that keeps me with my sister. How do you raise people to think that way? How do you think that way in a church? That I'm in this with a body. I'm in this with a team. Not just my family, that's critical. Honestly, it'd be marvelous if we even thought that way as a family, but let alone as a corporate entity. Now, Paul is not gonna settle for just the families because he wants to go to the church because he's the one who prayed in Ephesians chapter three. I want you together. I want you together, you plural, to understand the height and the depth and the breadth of the love of Christ. In other words, you're gonna have a kindergartner's perspective of Christ's forgiveness unless you're in the church. The only way you're gonna mature is if you understand the corporate need of what this body teaches me about Jesus, about his love, his forgiveness. How do we raise families? How do we create a church where six, eight individuals walk around with three, three? Jackson walked up to this gentleman, enamored by him, and he went up and he said, I just want to commend you. Your president told me the story. And he said, you know, what I witnessed, your parents would be proud. He looked back at him and he said, well, I just think God wants those of us who are 6'8 to look after those who are 3'3. Three, three. Oh. Yeah. And God wants those with the gifts, varieties that take on and manifest themselves in a variety of ways. To not think it's all about you, but it's how we play as a team that's important. 18th century, 
there was a gentleman, Priestley, who made this statement. He says, we are members of one body. We're responsible for each other. And the time will soon come when if men will not learn that lesson, they will be taught it in fire and blood and anguish. I think that was actually quite prophetic. I think we're in that time. I think we're in that time where in the next 10 years, churches are going to experience a persecution that they've never seen. Christian colleges, they're estimating somewhere between 50% of them are gonna close in the next 10 years. And they're going to be pressed into compromise or extinction. And it's then that we're gonna be wrestling with this question. Do we understand that we're really responsible for each other? And do we understand that we're really members of one body? And the time will come if we don't hold together and have something that's more defining to us than our differences. We're going to learn the consequences of that through fire and blood. Paul, when he's writing to them, he gives them six things. He says, now about spiritual gifts, brothers, let me talk about life in the spirit. What does it look like? What's that thing that holds us together? Six things he says. Number one is the fact is you were once a pagan worshiper. You were once directed by the enemy. You were once a person under the influence of the enemy. And now you've become a what? A worshiper of God. And the thing that we have in common in this room is that we all worship the same Lord. We may sing differently. We may have different gifts. We may even come to certain passages where we have some distinction. But the fact is, we only through the power of Christ can say Jesus is our Lord. Now, you and I both know that somebody can say Jesus is Lord and not mean it. It's not the capacity to speak those words. It's the capacity to own those words. Is the ability that a person moves from a stubborn, independent, rogue, rebellious, idol worshiper to a person who rejects all of those and moves over in their life to become a person who says, Christ, you are supreme. Idol worship is nothing more than creating something in your own image and somehow strangely entrusting it with power. However... The worship of Christ is wonderfully acknowledging I am not God and I submit to you and I come under your authority and you have every right to direct me. You're supreme, you're Lord. You can't say that without the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because an unregenerate heart won't say that. They won't acknowledge that. They are still gonna fight for their own independence. Paul wants us to start with this place that we all worship the same God. We all have the same father. When we lift up our hearts and we sing a few minutes ago, we're all speaking to the same God. Some of you didn't have a God over here who's created in some image and some of you have another. You're all talking to the same God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. You're talking to the same God who sent his son to die for you and the Holy Spirit that is indwelling you and seeing in you, that's the God that you pray to. That's the God you worship. 
And Paul secondly moves on and he goes, not only that, but we all depend on the same God. It's the, it's the life stream of which you exist. He says there are, in verse four, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. Different kinds of service, same Lord. Different kinds of working, same God who works all of them in all men. The only reason you're alive today is because God has given you breath. The only reason you're not in heaven and that you're not done on this earth. And in fact, God has determined your days far before you ever lived one of them. The scripture says your days. And every day that God gives you is a day that he gives you as a gift. And everything that you have, everything you have, the grace God has given to you, the family God has given to you, the church you belong to, the gifts that you serve is because the father lavishly poured his grace upon you. Years ago, um, when I first came to town, friend Don Bubna, who used to be back in the 80s, a pastor at uh, Alliance, and we prayed together. One day we were walking, it was a rare day, it was sunny. I looked up and I said, man, Don, isn't this a beautiful day? And Don said, I'll never forget this. My father made it just for you. Well, that's not true. I understood what he said. What he wanted me to understand is how much the father loved me and him and you. And how much every breath that I take is a gift from God should not be presumed upon. And because of that, there should never be a moment in your life that you should elevate yourself above another. The only reason you breathe is the the reason that they breathe is because God has said your heart can work. The only reason we exist is because God says to the sun, rise. And Jesus, it says in Colossians, carries the firmament, the the earth, the, the whole system in his hands. And the implication is pretty simple. If Jesus were to take his hands away, you and I would disintegrate. All of the systems that God put into place, gravity and all of those things would cease to exist. They exist because the father made a decision and the son to run and to sustain the earth. And if it just for a moment, Christ was to take his hand away from this universe, it wouldn't just go on. It would explode. It wouldn't hold together. And God put all of these things in motion. Why? So that we would understand you can't live without him. We all depend upon the same God. And this God who gives us life also gives us gifts. We all participate rather than merely spectate. Verse 7. Paul is writing and he says, now to each one, the manifestation, the distribution, if you will, of the spirit is given for the common good. One of the lies that the enemy is going to try and convince you of is that this church doesn't need you. There's a lot of people here. Yep, there are. And you can go to a lot of really good churches. There's a lot of people here. And sometimes you sit there and say, you know, if I, if I didn't come to this church, they wouldn't miss me. In fact, some of you have tested that. 
probably with a little bit of a rebellious heart, you, you stayed home for six weeks and no one called you. And you made the conclusion, you know what? They don't miss me. They don't need me. If they needed me, they would have called me. Do you realize that the basis of your decision is not the word of God? It's the failure of a person to not call you. I wish somebody would. I wish somebody would miss you. I truly do. As much as I wish somebody would miss you, that's not a good rationale to make a decision. What's a good rationale to make a decision is what the scripture teaches. And that is what every person in this room is a gifted individual by God. That's what he says. And they are gifted for the common good, for the benefit of the church. What is a spiritual gift? There's a lot of definitions. I'll give you one. It's not overly, you know, fantastic. It's just one. It is a spiritual endowed capacity gifting that has a spiritual impact for the good and the strengthening of the body of Christ. Now, Paul has a list here. He's given them in this text. And people go down and they, they look at it and some they like and others they're uncomfortable with, so they write them off. And then you go over to Ephesians 4 and they look at that list and think, huh, it's different. It's not the same as 1 Corinthians 13. And then you, you, you look at Romans and it has a set of lists. And then you look at Peter, he has some lists there of certain positions and also gifting. And so people come to various conclusions. You've probably come to one. I have one. Is this the list that we go by? Is this it? Because if you were taking them, put them all together, I think there's about 21 of them. Is that it? I kind of think that if God had an exact list that he was like, this is it, don't go beyond this, he probably would have given it to us. I don't find God elusive. I find him quite communicative and he tells us what's important. The fact that he gives us in four different locations a different list that somewhat overlap, but not all of them by any stretch, probably is an indication that there's not an exact list that we ought to say this is it. Because there's some things, for example, as you know, I, you've probably seen this before. There are some people that when they play, I'm, I'm just moved. I, I am moved. There's sometimes when people sing, I'm just like, wow. I mean, I'm, I'm up here crying. There are some people when they sing, I sing with them. And there are some people when they play, there's just something of the capacity that they have been given that they, the spirit of God moves me. I, I enter into worship. And then there are other people when they play, you're just thankful the service is over. That's me. There's no spiritual gift of piano playing. There's no spiritual gift of violin playing. There's no spiritual gift of, you know, oboe playing. There's no, there's, there's a lot of things that aren't listed. Um, There are some artists that are just unbelievably gifted. Years ago, we started a, a art show in Fort Collins. It became virtually one of the premier art shows in all of Colorado. We had a very, very determined strategy. Half of the artists were non-Christians. Half of them were Christians. We told the non-Christians, you can pretty much do anything you want. No nudity. We kind of set some boundaries on that. But it was an art show you wanted to get into. It, It was huge. 
And one of the things that we did afterwards is we would have those who were believers kind of put together their faith and their art and they would teach us about how their art reflects their worldview of God and, and reflects their, their worship of God. It was some of the most fascinating moments of my life. I loved listening to them. And I realized some people have a unique capacity to create something that moves the heart. That causes you to look at one, when I remember looking at one sculpture of a prodigal, is to pray very differently for prodigals. I was shaped, I was moved in that moment. That's not listed. Sculpturing is not listed as best I understand it in the scripture. So I, I personally don't get real fixed on, I think you could probably fit almost everything under the 21. But are there some uniquenesses? I think there are. Another question that people <clears throat> ask all the time is how many gifts were given? The scripture doesn't tell us. It doesn't say in verse seven, now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given one time or in a single moment. It doesn't say, it doesn't say a number. Now, again, just pure anecdotally as being a pastor for almost 40 years, I've noticed a few things. I'm not going to say thus saith the Lord. I've just noticed the same thing you have. And that is usually when a person is gifted in teaching, they don't fall out of that. Usually when a person is gifted in evangelism, they don't all of a sudden become a non-evangelist. Usually when a person is gifted with this beautiful gift of mercy, they rarely, I've never seen it (laughs) so rare, turn into a prophet. In fact, they stay away from the prophets because those people are just harsh. And I've never seen a person with the gift of administration all of a sudden become a person that can't put anything together and organize. So what I'm saying is, is that usually when you start and whatever God entrusts to you, and by the way, it's his decision, not yours. Whatever God entrusts to you, you usually stay in that. Can some people operate in multiple? Yes. This may be a mistake to use Paul because I think some of you are going to say, oh, Paul's, you know, one of the foundations, Galatians 2.20, one of the foundations of the church. Paul had to have operated in the gift of teaching. He had to have operated in the gift of faith through prayer. Paul had a season in his life where he had the gift of healing. I've prayed for people and God healed them. I don't have the gift of healing. Paul, sometimes if you touched his cloak, you got healed. That's the gift of miracles and of healing. So Paul, and and you could argue that maybe he had even more than that. There were times that he operated in a lot of them. I don't think the point of this text is to say you have a certain number or that over the years, you're always going to be in one or the other. I tend to think most people operate in three. They have a strong lead gift and maybe two secondary and if sometimes if you pray for healing and God heals somebody, it doesn't mean you have the gift of healing. It means that you trusted God. If you got the gift of healing, you and I are going for a trip over to the hospital. Because we're going to save a whole lot of people money. And I'm not being facetious. I'm not. If you got the gift of healing and miracles, 
then let me tell you what, you and I, are, we're going on a trip. Because I want to see the body of Christ healed. And I've got some friends who are dying of cancer and I want you to be with them. What the text does say is this. Every person has a gift. And every person, Paul says, should have the same goal. And that is to strengthen the body. Verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. I don't mean to say this to pick on anyone and feel free to come up and chat afterwards. I'm going to shoot straight with you as best I can. But the whole concept of a prayer language biblically does not make sense to me. Because the criteria of a spiritual gift is for the common good, not for you. The teacher must teach. The leader must lead. The mercy expresses mercy. The administrator has the capacity to administrate, not their own personal life. Not one gift that you can show me is for the purpose of edifying your life. It's for the benefit of what? The body of Christ. And I've asked and I'm not exaggerating, 100 people. Tell me how your prayer language that you pray with no interpretation called the gift of tongues edifies the body. And out of 100 plus people that I've asked, I've never gotten an answer. Not one. Why? Because it's a gift that's been designed for the what? The edification of their own soul. You can call it what you want, but please don't call it the gift of tongues. Because it doesn't align with scripture. Now I may land in some places where you're a little uncomfortable in the Holy Spirit. I'll make sure I do that. I I don't want to disappoint you. (laughs) But my dear friends, we have to come back to the Bible and say, this is our guide. This is our parameters. And if it doesn't fit with the scripture as best we understand it, then we have to reject it. No, we don't have to be mean about it. We don't have to be snooty about it. We don't have to take some position where we're in judgment of people. But you will do people a kindness if you continue to bring them back. What's the text of scripture say? What's the ultimate aim of spiritual gifts? It's for the common good. Paul says in Ephesians 4, it's for the maturity of the body. It's not given to you to use at your own discretion. It's given to you to strengthen the body. It's not given to you by selection. I remember, honestly, uh, for years, I just kind of had it out with God. Um, I wanted to have the gift of evangelism. I really did. I, I wanted to preach and and. Greg Laurie and others were kind of my model. And it's like, you know, God, I want to see more and more people come to Christ. I do. And um, I was kind of joking with um, Reed. It's like, man, I preach every week. You come in here, preach one weekend and 21 people get saved. Kind of ticks me off. (laughs) I'm seeing that in jest. But I I actually had to really submit my heart to the Lord. It's like, Lord, I, I, I want to add a gift. And, and if you want to negotiate, I'll let you know which one. I don't mind if you take it away. 
but I want to add one. And, and he said, no. He said, I, I, it's not that I, I don't ever get to lead people to Christ. But you and I both know that there are certain people that God just has uniquely said, you're going to be one of my instruments. It doesn't mean we get off the hook. It doesn't mean, oh, I don't have the gift, I'm done. <laughs> no. It means that I will watch people that God has anointed marvelously for the common good of the church. And rather than be jealous of that, God says, I want you to celebrate that. Because the end game is what? The church is strengthened. And because of that, Paul wants us to understand that we all fill an essential role. We all do. There's nobody here that can say, wow, I, 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 would, I would not be missed if, if I were gone. Yes, you would. You would because God brought you here for a purpose. God is, is orchestrating the body of Christ. And, and I'm really convinced, absolutely convinced that when I introduce myself to a new person, one of the things I'm always asking God, God, what are you bringing them here for? What's their gift? How's their gift going to shape us? How's their gift going to expand us? How is it going to mature us? And as Paul goes down through this text, he begins to kind of unpack a number of things. He says to one, there's given through the spirit, the message of wisdom, another, the message of knowledge to another faith by the same spirit. And he goes down through these. All of these are the work of one and the same spirit. What's his point? We need them all. Every one of them is essential. This afternoon, if you're a football fan, you're going to watch um, two teams. And uh, in particular, you're going to watch one guy that they decided is so critical, they're going to pay him $450 million to play. That's a lot of money. I'm not jealous at all. I just wish he knew me. <laughs> That's all I wish. He's really good. He's got athletic ability that I'll only have when I get to heaven. And I'm not even sure then that God's going to do that much work. <laughs> you and I both know. He's got a number of freight trains that stand right in front of him. Who are stronger than an ox. And who could turn back a stampeding herd of rhinos. The vast majority of them, you won't know their name. But apart from them, Patrick Mahomes would be nameless to you. He would be. You wouldn't know his name. Other than the fact that he has good friends. I know this only because uh, the left tackle's mother has a horse with, horse with us, mother-in-law. The left tackle and the quarterback are good friends. It's not surprising. Because that quarterback understands that apart from you, I'm dead. He's essential. And they're tied in, it's essential. And maybe once in a while, they, you know, their, their pride gets the best of them. But I actually think in many times in athletics, both on football and baseball teams, you know, the starting pitcher that is really good understands that if I don't have a closer, I'm never gonna win a game because I can't go the whole game. Rarely. And he understands if you don't bring a good closer, 
all of my innings pitched are going to be lost. and My wins will be gone. They tell me that in a church, um, 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. For 40 years, that's all I've ever heard. I wonder who makes up those stats. It's clearly not a pastor. Probably some expert that gets $450 million a year for writing books. Fact is, that statement is a complete lie. I offer our church. Midweek, we're going to need 20 of you to pour your hearts on Tuesday night into a group of high schoolers. Tuesday night or Wednesday night, we're going to need another 20 to pour your heart into middle schoolers. And then we're going to need another 75 of you to pour your heart into a bunch of kids. Through the week, under the direction of Pastor Jeff and others on our team, we're going to have somewhere close to 30 small groups that are going to meet all over the city. And they're all going to be led by shepherds, people who open their home and care for people. And when they go to the hospital, they're the first line of defense. When somebody needs a meal train because they're coming home from a surgery, they're the ones who launch it. And then if you come here on a Saturday morning, about seven o'clock is when these guys show up. They're going to be out there cleaning up all the garbage and making this place look beautiful. And in the fall, they're going to be picking up 10 billion leaves. And they're going to mow. And you're going to say, mow what? I know it's not much, but let me tell you, they still have to mow. And then Sunday morning comes. And there are people who land here at 7 o'clock and they do a security run. And they make sure that this place is safe and they kind of scoot on some people. And they're, they're, they're like soldiers, honestly. They just, they, they, they sign up for the infantry. But they're an infantry that picks up garbage and sometimes feces. And they come in here and they make sure that this place is ready just for you. In particular, they have a high, high value for our families with young kids. They want you to feel safe. I'm sorry I missed 39 other ministries. It is one of the biggest perpetrated lies in the church. The 20% of people do 80% of the work. On Saturdays, you're going to have 200 coaches and refs and all spread all over the city, loving these 800 kids and upward. The enemy will want you to hear. They don't really need you. If you were to stay home, they wouldn't miss you. That's as much of a lie as if Patrick Mahomes told his left tackle, I really don't need you. I got this on my own. They all know different. And if you test the church, and some of you have, I'm not new to this game. Some of you have stayed out for three months, four months, six months. Nobody called me. They don't need me. Can I encourage you? Don't make a decision based upon maybe the failure of some people that should have called you. Make your decisions based upon the teaching of God's word.
What's it say? You're gifted. You're needed. You're essential. And without you, we're weaker. But with you, with you, we have an incredible team. Finally, Paul says, we've all experienced the same baptism. Um, I can't tell you how many times, probably you have too, somebody has asked, have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I tell them very quickly, absolutely I did. When was it the day I got saved? Why do I say that? Because of the scripture. The Bible tells us in verse 13, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. We all go to the same well. The day you got saved is the day you got indwelt, filled, and received the power of the Holy Spirit. It's what adopted you into this church. It's what sealed you. It is what cleansed your heart. All of those things happened the day you got saved. Ah, pastor, is there any change in relation to the Holy Spirit? Oh, yes. Yes. You can quench the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, you can be out of step with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, you can be not influenced fully by the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean you need a second dose. It means you need to be obedient. It doesn't mean that you need to be baptized again. You got it. That's what brought you and initiated you into the relationship of the body of Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. You have all that you're ever going to get. Can you quench it? Yes. You have a steady diet of porn, you're going to quench the Holy Spirit. You have a steady diet of gossip, you're going to quench the Holy Spirit. You unleash your anger and rage, you're going to step outside of the Spirit and you're not going to have the power of the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't mean you need to be rebaptized, it means you need to be obedient. Because when you're obedient, when you understand that we all worship the same God, we all come under and depend upon the same Holy Spirit, we all drink from the same well. It's then when we submit ourselves to each other that we play a beautiful, beautiful song. In a few weeks, on Good Friday, the orchestra is going to play. I love it. I love it. All of these different parts coming together. If all we had on that evening were the cymbals, well... It'd be like if we just had a whole concert of oboes. For those of you who play oboe, don't be offended. I'll pick on somebody else in a minute. But if, if you told me that we're having a concert uh, where the piccolos are going to play, it's like probably not going to show up. But if the orchestra's going to play. But God forbid that the oboes come and say, hey, you know what? I don't care what the pastor's doing and I don't care what the conductor's going to do. We oboes, we're going to show that we're here. And if they decided to go rogue and play their own thing, the conductor would be embarrassed. The oboes would be embarrassed. And the rest of the orchestra would be saddened and frustrated. We live in a culture where people frequently 
want to deny the historical reliability of the Gospels. They want to tell you that there is discrepancy in the scripture and it's inconsistent. They want to take the supernatural out of it and make it a a narrative block of information that has the authority of Huckleberry Finn. And then God says, let me put together the church. And let me bring a variety of people all uniquely gifted. And like a beautiful orchestra, let me bring them together and under the conductor, Christ. Take all of their instruments and submit to one who will lead them. And what will happen, Jesus said, is this world out here that will do everything to discredit the scriptures will hear the music of the church. They will come in and they will witness it. How do I know that? First Corinthians 14, we'll get there. It tells us. And they came in and they heard and they witnessed the submission of the church and their conclusion of surely God exists and is in this place. You see, you're in my submission. It's because we're all a part of his orchestra of grace. And when we live that way, and when we understand the privilege of being on this team, and the joy of being nurtured and strengthened by others, and nurturing and strengthening other people, it's then that we sing a song that this world hears. And it's then that they're drawn to Christ through the unity of the Spirit.